when I watch that video, I'm like, I want to just get after it, but I have, uh, I think I have Achilles tendonitis, so watching that actually is super frustrating, because I want to run. Ah, good morning. Nice. I'm excited to continue this series, as you saw in the video and then the slide. We're going through the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And just a quick kind of disclaimer, one of the reasons that we get up here and we teach from the Word of God is so we never skip over anything. We want to actually allow the Word to be the thing that's teaching us things, not not the speakers. And we do spend time in God's Word, but we want to read what it actually says and then let you know the intent of the writers. And so this morning, as we're in this letter, we're going to find Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, which is modern-day Turkey. And as we've been studying the book of Acts, we're all the way in chapter 14, guys. That's pretty good. We're going to finish this by Uh, the end of May, hopefully, likely story of next year, we will finish the book of Acts. But as we've been studying this, this third stage of the book of Acts, which follows the Apostle Paul in this missionary journey, bringing the gospel message to the ends of the earth, to mostly a Gentile audience, we see Paul and Barnabas go into different towns and begin to first preach and teach in the synagogues, which it looks similar to what we're in, a, a church-ish building. And they go into these towns, go into the synagogues, and when they go to the synagogues, they're first preaching the text of the Old Testament to the Jews, and then they tend to go into the cities and preach to the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul will pen a letter to the church in Rome, and he says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So let's begin in verse 1 of Acts 14, and we will see what the persecution of Paul might actually produce in us today. It says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, I think NIV, which is a uh, new, uh, 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 I always call it nearly inspired version. Now I don't actually remember what NIV stands for, for real. Thank you, that. Um, I don't, generally I think it does a decent job, but I think here it doesn't do the best job of explaining why so many believed. Now, I like NIV. Most of the scripture that I've memorized is in NIV, the translation that sits in the pew, pew Bibles in front of you. But No translation is perfect other than the original writings as they were written. So here is Acts 14, verse 1 in ESV, in ESV, and so here's the next next slide, and uh, forget the NIV on the right, pretend that's not there. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogues and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. The emphasis in other translations seems to be less on the effectiveness of the speakers and more on the reality that the way they spoke was so unique. And I'd contend that that uniqueness was due to the fact that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was speaking through them. So here's the thing. The reason I even bring this up is because contextually, I don't want us to open this book and try to figure out how we can be specifically effective, how we can try to do everything right, because our abilities are not the point. Our talents are not the point. In fact, we're not the point. And if we interpret Scripture with us being the point, 
that tends to be how we get off the rails when we start to read this and explain it to other people. And what we see in this letter, and even how we entitled the series, is the acts of the apostles, the actions of the apostles, by the Holy Spirit. So, question, who is effective in salvation? Answer, the Holy Spirit. That is who is effective when it comes to sharing with others the truth of the gospel and that person understanding it, revealing the truth of the word and opening the eyes of the blind. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst to the movement of God's message being heard and then being received. And so Paul and Barnabas, once again, go into a synagogue as they do in almost every town they go to, in, now in Iconium, and both Jews and Gentiles came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Woo! I just felt like I needed one woo. Chapter 14, verse 2. But the Jews, who refused to believe, stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. But the Jews who refused to believe, poisoned the minds of the other Gentiles, the, the Gentiles who were yet to believe and trust the message of grace, getting what you do not deserve in Jesus Christ. The Jews probably used a lot of accusations and half-truths to shade the reputations of these apostles and believers of the Lord. They perhaps questioned their morals, their lack of keeping the law, their backgrounds probably weren't spotless, and their religion probably wasn't up to par of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of this day. But let's look at chapter 14, verse 2, and different translation again. NASB, which says it this way, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Brethren means brothers. Two, here, two words I want you to see here in this specific verse with this specific translation was, but the Jews who disbelieved, they refused to believe. Here's what that really means. It means to be unpersuadable. Have any of you ever been like this? Yeah, you don't want to say it because you know you have been. And the other one, the other word I want you to notice is embittered, embittered. This was a subtle whispering of questioning the apostles and the servants of the Lord. This was a subtle propaganda against the gospel. Now, this still happens today, in case you didn't know, but it's not just in bad teaching. It also is the way that many people represent Jesus Christ in his church. Some ways we're heavy-handed, and we kind of have this turn-or-burn religious effort to either make oneself feel better about themselves, well, I got it figured out, and they don't, or the culty way, that people stand on the street corner or aggressively attempt to persuade people to not the Jesus of the Scriptures, but a poor interpretation of what the Scriptures reveal about God, His Son, and His Spirit. Now, let's be real, and I, I figure where else to be honest than inside a church building. Society has a pretty poor view of the church, doesn't it? You guys can talk back. Okay, all right, good. I'm glad I just didn't make this up. It has a pretty poor view of the church, about the Bible, and any real identification with Jesus, which doesn't mean that we just need to, if we're a Christian, to appear more holy or try to make Jesus look better. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are holy if you're found in Christ, which means that you're set apart. It doesn't mean you look better than everyone else. It means that you're forgiven. It means that you already have your right standing with God purchased for you by Jesus' sacrifice. 
So we don't have to live this life to earn things. We get to live in the freedom that we, those who have trusted Jesus, are representing the King of Kings. And not just as his subjects, but as his sons and his daughters. We can invite others to know and be known by the King of Kings, King Jesus, no longer have to have that feeling of, man, I need to earn this, or that feeling of guilt for the reality that we cannot live up to the perfect standard that sometimes we kind of assume the church expects of us. But Jesus already met that perfect standard for us. Now, these Jews that Luke is describing were the ones that had been blinded by their pride so much that they were unable to believe for one second that the message of the apostles was true. And the message of the apostles as they were going into these synagogues was just the continuation. It was the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, generally the left side of your Bible. They couldn't believe that it was true. Because if they believed it was true, that would mean that their efforts and beliefs had been wrong. So, like, I like it when people talk back. I mean, not my kids, but like in church. And so I have a real quick survey for you, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I recommend your right hand. You can raise your left hand if you feel like it. Here we go. Have you ever been wrong? If you've been wrong, please raise your hand. Awesome. That's almost all of you. Almost. I'm so glad you're not like my dad who was like, yeah, the only time I was wrong was that one time I thought I was wrong. I kid you not. That was my father for you. Okay, now, those of you, again, survey, raise your hand, keep them up, please, if you've been wrong, real fast, real fast, great. Now, with your hands raised, have you ever learned something new about God that made you realize that something you once believed about God was wrong? Wow, it's everybody. You can put them down. Thank you. So, for those of you who just admitted that, you aren't so prideful that you can't admit that you've been wrong. These Jews that Luke is talking about are not there yet. So what do they do? In their unpersuadable pride, they attempted to bring others down with them. Because if they could get more people to agree with them, they kind of thought they would be justified. I think we all think a little bit in the idea that majority rules, don't we? But Scripture sadly teaches the reality that the number of those who believe really doesn't justify if the gospel is true or not. Because what God says is that few will actually trust God at his word. Here's what it says. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at Jesus. He can take it. I'm a little bit more insecure. Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, you know what that word means in Greek? Many. Enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few, and I'll let you guess what few means, find it. Jesus' words here are a warning. And while not as nice as some would attempt to sugarcoat these words, the reality is that Jesus knew that a few would find him before this, a few would find him in this, and a few would find him in the future after saying this, because as Paul points out, the gospel is gross, that's my translation, to those who are perishing. This is what Paul writes, the same Paul we're talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphant professional 
uh, procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. All right, I just read that for some context. Here's, here's the point, verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, we're an aroma that brings life. Now, listen, the gospel is true if you believe it or not. How can I say that? Well, don't you get paid to? Eh, I guess. Yeah, I do. But because the Word of God says that the resurrection of Jesus justifies our belief in God and that we could have our salvation of our souls gifted to us in Christ. Paul writes to this church in Rome again, and he says, chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So what must we believe? That Jesus rose from the dead. He died on the cross. We exalt the cross. We realize that Jesus died in our place, but my God is not dead. He is risen. So Christians, there will always be disbelief. There will always be the unpersuadable. But even Paul who we're talking about, who is here as an apostle, capital A, preaching and teaching about Jesus, was once this as well. Here's Paul's words to one of my favorite uh, books in the Bible because of the name, 1 Timothy. Woo! You're welcome. Here's what Paul says to him. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, check it, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and here's the word I want us to pay attention to, insolent opponent. This is in ESV. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Oh, oh me too. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Insolent opponent, Paul calls himself. Your mama wears combat boots. That's how bad this is. Insolent opponent, which means, here's what it means, ready? Unpersuadable, which means that even if you prove me wrong and you're right, I'm still not changing my mind. That's what an insolent opponent is, and that's what Paul was. You would refuse to believe even if you were proven wrong. And that's what these Jews were doing in their pride. Verse 3 of Acts 14. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Paul and Barnabas continued to speak boldly for the Lord for a considerable time in Iconium. And how did God confirm the message of grace? By enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Anyone else grow up in like the 80s and 90s and when you hear signs, you just sing Ace of Base? Anyone? Okay, thank you, thank you, amen. For the record, I've been around those who have spent a lot of time unpacking these signs and wonders. And while they happened, I just want to point out the point of, an, of a wonder and a sign. They point to something. What does a wonder and sign point to? 
Jesus is almost always the right answer. So just if I point to you, just say, Jesus? Yeah, it points to Jesus. And this confirmed the message. And while I think that this happened and it still happens today, it might have taken on a new shape today for us. The greatest sign or wonder that points to Jesus today is a transformed life. Wonders and signs tend now to be life change of an individual. Someone who believes the gospel and the gospel message personified in Jesus Christ. And they begin to grow, not physically, but they start to change. They start to be transformed more and more to look like Jesus. And not just with the beard, guys. They're identified in the fruit of the Spirit. But what's more miraculous than an individual being transformed by God? But because this isn't as obvious, so let me be clear, because this isn't as obvious or quick as we would like, we tend to not notice the subtleness of how people have been starting to change around us. And I could use example of after example of people in these pews. Not because your life change is so amazing because it happened quickly, but because God has been at work in your life and we've been doing life for a series of time because fruit doesn't grow quickly, but it's something that is noticeable over time. And so when God redeems a person, he, he or she begins to change because God begins to change them, sometimes drastically, but generally it's a lot more subtle. But the point is not the fruit. The point is not the person the point is the God who redeems and produces the fruit. And who provided the message of grace? It was the Lord, just like the signs and wonders that God enabled these servants to do. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. While the message was being shared, the God, God was using it to draw people to himself, but there was also opposition coming from the Jews who did not believe, and what the text says was poisoning their minds of the people who were not yet decided. Verse 5, some foreshadowing. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. And what does disbelief do? What does the unpersuadable spirit do? It looks for ways to shut down the noise, doesn't it? Or in this case, the movement of God's message of grace through these messengers. All of a sudden, the implication seems so offensive to this group of people that's stoning. The act of taking a very large stone and dropping it on the heads of these believers became the anticipated response because they disagreed with the message so much. Wow. Verse 6. But they found out about it, the apostles. And they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas and others who joined them found out that they would be harmed for sharing this message, so they fled. Bunch of chickens. No. I don't read that as scared. I read that as we are called to take this message to the ends of the earth so we're not going to allow anything to get in our way. So they moved on and they moved to another place where immediate danger was not as forecasted. 
But sharing the gospel message was more important to the apostles and messengers of the Lord than anything else. Sharing this good news was not something that they could or should be kept to themselves. It was a compulsion led by the Holy Spirit to proclaim what many had not heard in this context, which was that God saves through the person and work of Jesus. Verse 8, in Lystra there sat a man who was lame, it means he couldn't walk. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. Verse 9, he listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called up, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Here we see the transfer of authority of Paul. This man that earlier in chapter 13 was called a teacher, and then after rebuking Elamus, if you were here, we, tell the, uh, we see Paul exercising the authority of an apostle. Not just, check it, not just in the authority to tell this man to get up and walk, but to see that the man had the faith in order to be healed in the first place. This man was listening to Paul, which began his practicing faith. I don't feel like I need to explain that, but how can any of us have faith in what God says if we don't actually listen to what he is communicating in his word? And while his healing was miraculous, miraculous and it was awe-inspiring, it was just as we read before. It was a sign, it was a wonder that confirmed the authority not just of the apostle, but of the message in which he was bringing, which that the dead could come alive spiritually in Jesus. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Baal and Barnabas. This crowd of Greeks, they were worshipers. They were known to worship from fables taught since their childhood about Greek gods like Zeus, Mercury, and Hermes. I still think today we were created to be worshipers. But instead of these Greek gods, we superimpose fantasy. All right, I'm going to step on someone's toes. We superimpose Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. Did he just say Game of Thrones in church? Yes, he did. The MCU. It's kind of gone downhill, hasn't it? Yeah, okay, let's just be honest about that. The DCEU. That's, never mind. Or plenty of other options that we wouldn't necessarily say that we believe are real but we live as if they are more important than the realities of our times. Comic-Con has always been to be better attended than churches that preach the gospel, let's be honest. But the problem is not that we inherently want to worship. That was a gift from the Lord. It's ascribing worthiness of worship to something that isn't the true God. And church, this is so subtle. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be a witch or a devil worshiper to be someone who worships in vain. When God said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, and these are known as the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. He said something before this. 
in the Ten Commandments in verse 3. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Which in the Hebrew culture, when there was a list, a lot like us, when we're making a list, the first usually is the most important. And in this case, the first makes all the rest possible or impossible. Because if we do not have any other gods before Christ, we will honor our father and mother, even when we don't want to. We won't kill. We won't covet. But when God is not preeminent, we then begin to fail this entire list, which once again teaches us that we need help. We need an outside source to save us, and we're offered that in Jesus. So I bring this up so none of you will hear from me, hey, try harder, be a better Christian. You can hear that anywhere where religion is taught. But I'm just building the case for the reality that we are a needy and dependent creation that cannot and will not stay away from sin so Jesus dies in our place and rises from the dead. And this is applied in the fact that we worship things that do not deserve to be worshiped. And in Paul and Barnabas's case, it was Paul and Barnabas who knew that they didn't deserve to be worshiped. Warren Wiersbe, a, a theologian, put it this way, true biblical worship so satisfies our total personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. And Lord, I'm sorry that I'm not there all the time, or maybe ever. Now listen, we were made to worship. We were made to ascribe worthiness to things. And it's okay to appreciate good things, to appreciate things that should and can supplement our happiness, but don't make that good thing God. And here we have this happening. Similar to our celebrity and influencer culture, we ascribe worth to those on the other side of screens that only God should have. We believe them wholeheartedly. We take their advice or their endorsement, and yet they don't know what God knows, nor have they done what God has done. So look at Paul and Barnabas's response. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, have you ever been watching a YouTube video and in the middle of the video, without even realizing it, the person in the video begins to endorse something or begins to sell you something like a commercial? Like, it freaks me out. I'm like, wait, what am I watching? That's not exactly what I'm about to do, but hear me. Sidebar. Luke just said the apostles, Barnabas and Paul. Any idea why I feel like any idea why you think I need to address these words? Barnabas, I don't think, is an apostle. At least not the way many of us view the apostles. Now, that's my answer. Let me explain why. We have spent more time in this series, as we've been going through the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. Especially earlier on in this series, we have done some specifics about what is an apostle. So let me give you a basic explanation. An apostle is someone, at least when we refer to the capital A apostle, is one who has been sent by God. And one of the reasons they were sent by God was they walked with Jesus before Jesus died on the cross, and then they were a witness to his resurrection. They saw Jesus alive in those 40 days that he walked the earth before he ascended to heaven. So that's an apostle, the one, but not just anyone who saw, ones that he chose. But there's also Paul, 
who we're talking about here, who did not walk with Jesus prior to his crucifixion, but was actually an opponent of his and the gospel message. But God specifically rescued Paul on the road to Damascus and set him apart to go reach the Gentiles, the non-Jews, which is what he alludes to while explaining the message of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what he says after he said that Jesus died in accordance for our sins with the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the 12. Well, Peter was one of the 12, so let's just get clear. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Fall asleep just as an example of death. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, meaning he wasn't like the rest of the apostles who walked with Jesus. This was not Barnabas, but this term for apostles was another word that was used, and the synonym was messenger. So Barnabas was not part of the 12, but he was one of God's messengers. So while Barnabas was chosen by God along with Paul, which we will see at the beginning, or we did see at the beginning of chapter 13, he was not part of the original 12 or converted after actually seeing Jesus alive after he died. So this messenger term seems consistent with how the apostle term was being used apart from the 12 and Paul. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. Here we go, verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Don't miss this. These messengers, Paul and Barnabas, after realizing that people who saw the miracle of this lame man being healed as a reason to worship both Barnabas and Saul or Paul, tore their clothes in disagreement, in protest, then began to explain that they were also only human. They explained the good news of Jesus and what he has done for those who would listen. Paul begins an explanation for these Gentiles that is catered to them. He says, friends, we are human like yourselves. You should turn from worshiping worthless idols and people to worship the true and living God. And look how he connects this for the Gentiles. This like, the living God who created the heavens and the sea and the earth and everything inside of it is the God that Paul is speaking about, a singular God who is over everything and everyone. Not like what they tended to believe, because in this context, there was every entity had its own God. There was the God of the sky, the God of the water, the God of life, the God of fire, the God of whatever. I wonder if they had the God of whatever. They did, to the unknown God. And Paul, pointing to nature, points to the one true God as the creator and sustainer of all things. You, he then says that in the past, God had allowed people to go their own way, which was pointing to the argument of that day and of today. 
And honestly, it's the excuse that everyone who wants nothing to do with God always brings up. If God is so good, why does he allow suffering? Survey. Anyone else ever struggled with this question? Yeah. There are those today who will say, why doesn't God stop all the wars and injustices? Well, he could. But if he did, he would take away the one thing none of us want to surrender, which is freedom of choice. Wouldn't he? We all want to have our own will. And so God gives us that. He can stop all wars. He can bring about justice quickly and swiftly. And I read ahead, he does. But for now, we live in the not yet, just like these guys. And in this not yet, we have a choice to pursue or reject God. Mankind exists in a world that God allows for the sum total of that choice, which is where evil exists. So the Greeks, they couldn't argue with this point. And so Paul then says that the good in nature that they have experienced is from the one true living God that has shown his kindness in the rain and the crops which fill their stomachs and also bring joy to their hearts because they weren't very good at being hangry either. The crowd wanted to worship something. And like most of us, it's a lot easier. Actually, let me say what it really is. It requires almost no faith to worship someone who's standing in front of you rather than someone that you're told about. Yet God's words and Jesus' resurrection both give us evidence and proof that we can trust this almighty God and also the testimonies of grace and the experience of knowing and growing in him become supplemental to our belief in Christ Jesus. I've too often ascribed worthiness and worshiped individuals who excel at things that I love to do over and over. And like the kings in the Old Testament that we read about, they over and over again disappoint. And then I would question my devotion to the created when I would be disappointed by these individuals, all while attempting to fill a God-shaped hole. So Paul, while attempting to persuade them not to sacrifice animals to he and Barnabas, Luke writes this, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Don't worship us, don't worship us. And they're sacrificing things to them. Worship is strong in all of us. Even if you don't like to stand and raise your hands while we sing, that doesn't mean that you weren't created to worship And for most of us, we don't ascribe the worthiness that God deserves to God. We want to worship something, and we, like these Gentiles, we might hear we ought to worship the one true God and then continue on our way to worship something created. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch, Ruh-Roh, and Iconium, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. And they dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. These disbelieving, unpersuadable Jews that we read about earlier, that poisoned the minds of those who were yet to believe the Gentiles, followed Paul and came here to Lystra to stone him. And the text says that they won the crowd over. My guess is this was about poisoning people's minds regarding the messengers. We live in a day and age 
I'm going to step on some toes, so just get ready. We live in a day and age where no truth is ever allowed to be conveyed if it offends anyone. And so instead of actually debating an issue or having a healthy disagreement, people would prefer to attempt to slam the opponent like an awful political debate, there's been a lot of them, than actually discussing disagreements of the issues. This, in debate, is called an ad hominem. Or for those of you who are less familiar with debates, like the one A I got in high school, it's known as character assassination. It skips the purpose of the argument and attempts to focus on the opponent's shortcomings. It's usually an unintelligent way of arguing, while also a great way to show that their argument is probably false. These Jews from Iconium and Antioch have brought their false views and began to convince the crowd so that they could take Paul and stone him. It takes me back to Jesus' words that are in Acts earlier that we studied a while back when Jesus was speaking to Ananias regarding helping Paul in his conversion to Christianity. He says this, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This wasn't just emotionally. This was physically. Paul persecuted and he attempted to stop the church of the living God from spreading the good news of Jesus we read about earlier in Acts. And here, Because he is proclaiming and sharing the good news of Jesus, these zealous Jews are now attempting to do to him what he once did to others. They beat him down. They pummeled him with rocks, so much so that they believed that he was dead. Incredible to think that these were Jews who believed in God, but acted this way. This is the type of thing that people point to when they want to make a case against what they will call religion. And I don't blame them. Christians have been doing this ever since. Uh, Christians for the podcast, I had quotes. Christians. And just because you call yourself a duck doesn't make you a duck. And there are a lot of people who call themselves Christ's followers and even wear the jersey of Christ, but don't know him, trust him, or obey him because they're too busy in their zealous fervor attempting to earn their way to God. Look at what happens, though. Possibly the most insane thing I have seen in Scripture other than Jesus willingly going to the cross. Look at what happens. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. It's pretty short, but that's kind of insane, guys. The other believers gathered around him. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to say that when they gathered around him, they probably prayed, right? And he was not dead, and I don't think that God raised him to life here because the text doesn't necessarily imply that, but it does say that the other believers gathered around Paul, and he got up, and here's where Paul imitates Jesus and a superhero. What's he do? He went back into the city of where he was just stoned and left for dead. Are you kidding me? This isn't natural. This isn't, let's be real, this isn't what any of us would do. The text doesn't say that he, what he specifically went to do, but I can guarantee it wasn't to go drink a Frappuccino at a hip coffee shop. 
Based on Luke's writings and Paul's calling, I, I would say that he went back into the city to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Let's not miss how harshly Paul was persecuted and yet how important this message was to this man. Only reason most of us or any of us would go back into that city was to either look for a fight or to bring some authorities with us. And what does Paul do? He offers them once again the invitation to know and be known by God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Church, why do we keep this message to ourselves? Why are we not looking for people in context to share the good news that Jesus is alive? How can Paul almost be murdered and love God and love people so much that he was willing to go back into the most dangerous place on earth at the moment for him and tell people that they're loved by God? I want to be Paul when I grow up, church. In fact, when I look at Paul, it makes me want to grow up and live with urgency and expectancy because Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we know it's sooner today than ever. And many don't know in our lives that God in Jesus specifically exists, that he is real, that he loves them, and that he offers salvation not in a moral code, not in trying to look good, not in trying to do better, but in the sacrificial death of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. I'm without excuse, church, and so are you for lacking boldness and willingness to share the truth of the gospel message with others. You know why? Because Paul, while passionate, he had a much more important attribute that each of us who have called on the name of the Lord share, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, living within each of us who have trusted in Jesus. So instead of telling you that what you are able to do because of the third person of the Trinity who resides in you, I want to remind you, Christians that you are left with no excuse not to share the hope that you have if God actually resides in you and you abide in him. So church, do not worry about what you will say. Be willing, be inspired, be challenged, be commissioned to be people who share the good news of the gospel of grace because there is no more important task than any of us could ever have. Worship team, come on up, and let me pray for us as a community. You went back, Lord, you drew Paul to go back into that town. What? But your message is that important, God. Your message is that important for my neighbors and people in my house people that my kids go to school with, the people that I work with, the people that come onto this campus, the people that I see on the road. Your message is that important to be shared with others. God, I don't want to be found worshiping in vain. I don't want to be found as someone who worships what I've created in my own mind rather than what you... I want to worship the creator. And so God, I pray as we have an opportunity to respond in musical worship, as we have a time of takeaways, as we have a time of closing and probably some coffee together afterwards if we feel like it, Lord, I pray that you would stir in us, not only in urgency, but God, would the motivation be, oh, 
The gospel of grace saved me. How could I not want others to hear about it? Lord, do your work. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.